I don't usually have you look at the title of the message. Today the title is The Silence of the Shams. I'll explain it in just a moment. But our text is found in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. And uh, as we do every Sunday, let's stand, if you can, and, and let's read our scriptures together. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. It is speaking of Barnabas and Paul, so you'll know when it says uh, they. You'll know it is Barnabas and Paul. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Let's read together. Let's read aloud. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and bless you for the wonderful opportunity and the privilege, Lord, of opening your word today. But we ask that you would anoint us, Lord, and bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit and grant us your wisdom and understanding. Dear God, we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this to us, Lord, is so important and so serious a matter that we need to listen and be focused upon these things today. Lord, may we be attentive to these things. May we let no distractions hinder us from receiving, Lord, your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You all may be seated. The Oxford American Dictionary defines the word sham as a pretense, a thing or feeling that is not genuine, a person who shams. The verb form of the word means to pretend or pretend to be. So when you see the word pretense, you realize that it is connected to the word pretend. Now the world is replete and abounding with pretenders. And dare I say, the church will entertain its own shamsters. I made that word up myself. 
It uh, entertains more shamsters than it would want to admit. The church does. Charlatans and false prophets and teachers that seek to deceive even true believers. Pretenders of the true faith who twist the Word of God into their own liking and for their own gain. How we've been warned of that, even to our own generation. The words of Jesus come down through centuries to our very hearts when He says in Mark chapter 13, verses 21 through 23, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, He is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Interesting that Jesus is actually pointing things out that are taking place today or will take place soon enough. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is preparing to leave the area where Ephesus is and and head off to Jerusalem, he gathers the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And one of the things that he says to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and following, he says, therefore, he says, take heed. I want you to notice how important that phrase, take heed, is. Because Jesus mentioned it in Mark 13. Take heed. Listen. Watch. Be careful. Be aware. Be awake. Be wise. Take heed. And Paul says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. Take heed. Listen. Watch. Don't be caught off guard. He says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom, or I say among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to, the, uh, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Twisting the Word of God. That's what it means to speak perverse things. To twist the meaning and the understanding of God's Word. Take heed, he says. And in Jude, which is a one-chapter letter by the the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, verses 16-19, through he writes, These are grumblers. Speaking of the same sort, of the same type. He says these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons. Interesting, the word sensual persons. Dealing with those who are, 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 are bound to the feelings of, of all of their senses. You know, the, the desires of all the senses. Rather than being spiritual, it's, it's really in contrast to that. But he says these are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. It is significant then that at the very onset of the church's missionary outreach to the world, that there was an immediate opposition to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that the first missionaries sent out by the church in Antioch, as we saw last time, 
Barnabas and Saul, they were no wet behind the ear ears rookies. They weren't wet behind the ears tenderfoots, as some might call them. There was Saul of Tarsus, now to be known as Paul, who by now was teacher a teacher of the Word of God and readily prepared to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. There was Barnabas, son of encouragement, Paul's mentor and fellow missionary in the proclamation of the gospel, seasoned in the Word of God, in personal relationship to Jesus Christ. If anything, John Mark, Barnabas' nephew, who they brought with him from Jerusalem, would be the eager young novice among the two seasoned ministers. And yet he himself, even as a young man, had had some contact with Jesus. And so through much prayer and fasting, Barnabas and Paul were given leave to depart Antioch. But most importantly, they were sent forth by the Holy Spirit signifying that the whole venture was from start to finish of God. This missionary journey was of God, not of man. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the authority for this venture of faith came directly from the Holy Spirit and not from a missions board. I think that's important for us to know in these days and times. And it's evident that the Lord would supply all all their needs. We don't see any offerings taken or anything. They just send them out. God would supply their needs. As we go back to our text in verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Seleucia wasn't very far from Antioch, there in Asia Minor, and it was actually on the coast, and that's where they could take ships to other places. And so they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Which uh, implies that uh, they didn't uh, just go to one place, but went to many places. The synagogues, it says. And then we're told that they also had John as their assistant. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they went from the eastern side of Cyprus all the way to the western side. They found a certain sorcerer, a, a false prophet, a, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul. In other words, he was side by side. He was at the very right hand of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. A prudent man, it says. Interestingly enough, this proconsul uh, gives us an indication of the kind of government that uh, the island of Cyprus had. It was certainly under Roman rule, but uh, those who were under a proconsul did not need military authority, as they did in in Judea. So a proconsul was really the, the kind of the governor over the whole place without military aid. So who he has next to him is important. It says that it was this false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Sergius Paulus, it says at the end of verse 7, this man called for Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. So with that in mind, if there is, only, if there is one thing that should be foremost on our minds as we set off on this first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul, if there's one thing that should be foremost on our minds, it is that Christianity is a missionary faith. 
Christianity is a missionary faith. And that not just for people to be raised up, individuals or families to be raised up as missionaries, the, the very Christian life is to be a missionary faith. It has been said that we either evangelize or fossilize. We either evangelize or we as the church fossilize. And it makes you wonder for just a moment. You know, we hear uh, of, of what's taking place in, in Great Britain, in particular in England and in London, uh, and, and how many of these great churches that have existed for centuries are closing down. And a lot of those churches are closing down and, 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 and uh, Muslims are buying them and, and building up mosques in their place. And at a certain time, England was the very key missionary country, sending out missionaries to all parts of the world, using the very fact that they had become an empire that had stretched out through most of the world. But the Word of God went out. But what has happened since? They became so focused within that they did not evangelize. Therefore, they fossilized. And became dead. You see, ours is a message of such urgency and significance that it must be told to the nations. I mean, this certainly was the, co- the commission given to the disciples of Jesus before His ascension. We read in Matthew chapter 28, that great passage of the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And I think it's so significant that He says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so this particular missionary journey was the work of pioneers. Barnabas and Saul were pioneers. They were treading on untapped fields to plow and to plant uh, them to reap the first fruits of the gospel harvest in other lands. A true missionary outreach. Now it's not to say that what happened in Jerusalem was not missionary, but it was it was at home, you know, it started at home. It started in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and now to the uttermost parts of the world. And so here they're sending these missionaries, and really the Holy Spirit is sending them. To plow, to plant those untapped fields, to reap the first roots of harvest. Now, we're not quite sure why the Holy Spirit first sent them to Cyprus except for the fact that it was the home of Barnabas. You go back to chapter 4 and you read about Barnabas there at the end of, of chapter 4. It mentions a man named Joseph of Cyprus. He was the man that they called Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. He, that, that was his character and so they named him that, Barnabas, son of encouragement. But his real name was Joseph, and it says that he was from Cyprus. So he's going home, in in essence. And and that serves as a reminder that we aren't to forget our witness at home. We aren't to forget that witness within our very own home. Ministry should always begin there. It began there for the Jews in Jerusalem, as I said before. And then it spread out from there. But it always began at home. It's a good place to, 
begin that work of Christ. It is also significant that Barnabas and Paul had a strategy. One that supports not only planting seeds at home, but also one that is in direct obedience to Jesus' strategy. Jesus had a strategy about all of this. Last night I almost said the word strategery. That's President Bush's term. Jesus had a strategery. (laughs) He had a strategy, and you know what it was? To the Jew first. To the Jew first. Listen to what Jesus tells His disciples when they are sent out the first time alone to minister. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a, a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jew first. In John chapter 1, as John is, is beginning this, this very preface to his gospel, the one thing he says in verse 11, he says, He came to his own. Jesus came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But it says he came to his own first, to the Jew first. Then Jesus, before he ascends, tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Well, who's in Jerusalem? The Jews first. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Apostle Paul had this same strategy himself as he writes about it and and gives forth that message in Romans 1 verse 16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That was the strategy. Barnabas and Paul would, be, would begin by first going to the synagogues of every city that had one. And most of the cities had a synagogue. The place where the Jews met to read God's Word, to hear comment of it. And we know that visitors to synagogues would often be invited to read from the Scriptures and even comment. It is quite possible then that Barnabas and Paul would pick texts that pointed to Messiah to springboard into declaring Jesus as Lord. Now consider the fact that they begin in Salamis and they work their way to Paphos on the, east, on the western shore of that island. So we're not talking just a couple of days or even a couple of weeks. We're talking about more likely months that they walked all the way across. But everywhere they went, they stopped in synagogues first. And along with them was John Mark. In verse 5, he is labeled as their assistant or minister. That word in the Greek is, is a term, a nautical term actually, used on ships of the time. Literally, it meant a, an oarsman or a, a rower on a ship. A galley slave. You've all seen the old movies, you know, the ancient movies of the slaves that were underneath the boat and they had the oars and they're all doing this and they're all sweaty and stinky, you know. And you can imagine what it was like under there. They were literally subordinate to the leaders because the masters themselves were up above. And they were underneath. And that's the word that is used for John Mark here as an assistant. 
It refers to one who serves in a subordinate capacity. Someone under orders. But you would have to think that it is in the same way in the church as it would be in the world. Because as I said before, Mark may have offered Barnabas and Paul valuable first-hand information about Jesus to them. From his experience as a young man at the time that Jesus was, was suffering and then, of course, eventually crucified and would die. As a matter of fact, this John Mark would be the one who would write the Gospel of Mark and use as much of the information that he had received from someone else he had served under, and that would have been Peter. So much of the Gospel of Mark is from Peter's perspective. But with all of that in mind, John went as an assistant. He went to serve, simply to serve. And by the way, assistants, I heard this, assistants are great unless you have to assist them. <laughs> so it's probably good that when you feel the calling of an, of, of an assistant or a servant or a minister, that that's what you do. You serve. And you're, it's great when you do, unless you know, you've gotten to a point where you're no longer doing what God's called you to do. Therefore, people are now having to serve you. And that's another, for another time. In verse 6 it says, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> a false prophet. A Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul. And he sought to hear the word of God. It's interesting to me that Luke bypasses months of ministry to focus our attention on this particular incident and this particular person. Because having, after having crossed the island of Cyprus from Salamis to Paphos, we're told that they found a certain sorcerer. I mean, that's an interesting term that Luke uses. And you know, Luke is very precise about everything that he writes. He was a physician. He was a doctor. So he deals with, with, with detail. And it says that they found this certain sorcerer. Uh, actually, a magician. From the word magos, we have the word magi from that word. As a matter of fact, that would be the singular of the word magi, magos. And that is the word that is used for sorcerer. The sorcerers at that time were, of course, also considered wise men <clears throat> because they were the ones who actually mixed science with the occult, integrating any and all knowledge discovered. It's no wonder then that he is probably at the right hand of this man who's seeking some kind of knowledge, some greater knowledge spiritually. This is supposed to be a wise man. But this wise man was mixing science with the occult. It was as if he was not only an astronomer, but he was also an astrologer. He wasn't just a chemist who messed around with you know, things that might help people. He was also into alchemy. Brings to mind the word pharmakia in the, uh, uh, the Greek word that is used for uh, certain types of witchcraft and all. That, that word is where we get the word uh, in the English, uh, pharmacy. But in those days, it was used more in, 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 in terms of, 
of, uh, of witchcraft and, and, and that kind of uh, the occult. But what we don't want to overlook is that this sorcerer was a false prophet, is labeled as a false prophet, and that he was also a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of Joshua or Yehoshua. Son of. And some commentators have said that that particular designation means that he may have been a, a, a kind of a superficial or, or, or not a truly committed follower, but a follower somewhat of Jesus himself. And that's possible, but I'm not quite sure about that when we look at this whole uh, story. The fact that he was a false prophet, in other words, he was a sham artist, he was a religious pretender, tells us that he claimed authority from God that he had not truly received. He claimed authority from God that he had not truly received. That is a false prophet. The fact that he was in Paphos, a city known for its immorality and its worship of Venus, the goddess of sexual love, tells us somewhat of his own personal agenda. Much as Jude described in his short letter. And again, I point you back to Jude in verses 4 and 8, where in verse 4 it says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our Lord into lewdness. And by the way, the word lewdness there is, is a word that, that is describing filthiness in, in, in sexual immorality. Filthiness. He says, They turn the grace of our God into filthiness and lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you jump down to verse 8 in, in Jude, it says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. And once again, that defiling has to do with things that are connected to sexual immoral uh, activity. They re uh, not only do they defile the flesh, but they reject authority, by the way, that is rejecting true authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Now that uh, little phrase there, if we were to study it even closer, was, was dealing with speaking evil of dignitaries, that of, of principalities and powers that are unseen. With all that in mind, this sorcerer had crept into the graces of this Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was described as a prudent and a, an intelligent man, who was obviously seeking spiritual truth, who when he heard about the ministry of Barnabas and Paul, he sought them out to hear what they had to say. The one thing that we know that Sergius Paulus didn't have, because he didn't have the knowledge of Christ at that point in time, was that he didn't have discernment about this person named Elimas or uh, Bar-Jesus. But it brings to mind, when we consider Sergius Paulus, is that people are hungry for spiritual things even today. People are desperately hungry for spiritual things today. But it's where they're looking, and it's what they're looking into, that is the concern. A few years ago, we were dealing in the church with, with the, the New Age movement, which really wasn't a, anything new. It was, all it was, was, was the old lie. Just packaged in a new way. The old lie that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where, where the devil in, in the form of this serpent deceives Eve. And, and, and the lie itself is that questioning of what God had to say. Did God really say what He said? Did God really mean what He said? 
And that's the lie that is going on even today. Does God really, really uh, uh, hate sin so much? I mean, look at what's going on in the world. Can't we have a little fun? Can't we do whatever we want? Aren't we supposed to be free to be whatever we want? And I want to worship God, but I also want to go do all of these other things. That's the lie. You see, God never changes. God's Word never changes. God's law hasn't changed. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But people are hungry for spiritual things. There will be people around us who will sooner or later seek to hear the Word of God through us. And when they do, guess what happens? The interruptions and the distractions will come fast, and they'll come furiously. Have you not already ex- uh, ex- uh, experienced that? I mean, how many times have we been in a position where we're speaking to someone about the Lord Jesus and we just don't want anything to get in the way? Then phones start going off. That person's phone starts ringing. You know, the, the, the buzz goes on. And, oh, excuse me, hold on. Or, or somebody else comes into the picture and then all of a sudden they want to add their two cents in. And, they want, and it just throws everything off as you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus. Happened to you? Happened to me? Happens to me? Am I alone here? Anybody else? We've gone through it? Anybody, anybody here sharing the love of the Lord Jesus with anybody? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, good. I'm glad to know that. Alright. Those interruptions come. This is what Bar-Jesus has become. The great interruption and distraction of Satan himself. Let's, let's read on so you'll understand this. Verse 8, But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He not only was a distraction, he was one who was actively wanting to turn the proconsul away from the faith of Christ. And then Saul, who, is, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and he said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? There's that word perverting again, perversion. You get, you get the picture. And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. So it wasn't permanent, but it was temporary. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, but being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Verse 8, Elymas. Let's look at him. Elymas, whose name is the translation of Magos, by the way, not of Bar-Jesus, as some have thought. Strongly opposed and withstood the preaching of Barnabas and Paul before Sergius Paulus, because he instantly recognized something. He instantly recognized the threat of the gospel to his own power and influence. Here was the spiritual leader, the Rasputin, to Sergius Paulus. And he saw Barnabas and Paul as a threat. He himself had no desire to repent and to seek the Savior. So he opposed the gospel with all of his might. But then again, Paul was not conciliatory. Paul was not offering any hint of compromise. He wasn't wanting to dialogue and seeking any middle ground. 
Oh, listen, listen, Elimas. Listen, Bar Jesus. Let's sit down and talk a little bit. We, we, we need to come to some, some understanding here. We need to find some, find some common ground here. There are people doing that today in the church. They're wanting to find common ground with Muslims. So they want to sit down. Let's, let's kind of look at things that we, we might be able to be conciliatory with. Paul didn't do that. Do you know why he didn't do that? He didn't do it because this was a battle of truth versus error, light versus darkness, and life versus death. And that was, it, that was then and it is today the same way. No matter what the cost, error must be confronted and exposed both then and now. Have you ever considered what great lengths some people go to just to keep someone from hearing the truth of the gospel? The issue here is not to be conciliatory with that. I mean, this seems to be the mission of every liberal college and university professor, every evolutionist, every humanistic psychologist, and even every liberal theologian. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago when Gail Irwin was, was, was speaking, and he talked about his, his, uh, his experience in, in his own college, which was supposedly a Christian college, and yet there were theologians that were trying to draw him away. They, they didn't do it. They failed. But how sad that these people want to keep people from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are actively and, and, and um, vigilantly opposed to it. But I want to tell you that the key to this whole passage that we're reading today is found in verses 9 through 11 of our text. And in particular, verse, verse 9. And Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the key. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I have to add that Barnabas was also. But because it was Paul who was speaking, Luke says Saul was also known as Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Folks, Hollywood has nothing on the, on the Bible. You know, they may have the graphic computers and all of that, but man, when it says a dark mist fell on this guy, that's what happened. And you didn't have to computerize it. And this guy went blind. By the way, what a fine way of making friends and influencing people. You know, Paul's method. You know, it was better than Dale Carnegie's, wasn't it? Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. <laughs> I mean, it was also a great way of ending up dead or in a dungeon. I mean, this guy is a second in command there with Sergius Paulus. But this was not a time for Paul to mince words. Because two souls were at stake. Two souls, not one. Two souls were at stake. And there was no caution to the wind to speak with political correctness either. I'm tired of hearing about political correctness, aren't you? Let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. 
He had to tell it like it was. The leading religious pretender at the right hand of the proconsul was simply called a liar, a fraud. The word fraud, by the way, literally means a, a user of trickery, a child of the devil, one who perverted the truth of God. And now, you know why this is titled The Silence of the Shams. Because the shams were now silenced. It's so clear here that Paul used spiritual discernment and was obviously operating in the gift of faith to rebuke and to pronounce judgment because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was no room for compromise. Although Paul would would be a target by critics for being judgmental. I used to hear it too when I first came to the Lord. I'd be sharing uh, about Jesus with some people in college and and they would say, oh, you know what, I just think Paul was just a... You know, he, he was just a, uh, uh, and this is, these are their words, a, uh, a male chauvinistic pig. That's what they call Paul. You know, because of the things that he wrote about women and all of that, you know. And so, oh, he, you know, he, look at him, look at the words that he uses here, look at the words that he uses there. You know, so they were, they were judging Paul uh, based on certain things that were said as he was filled, of course, with the Holy Spirit. And then they would use that thing, but doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? That, that was their extent of being a, 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 a Bible theologian. They knew one verse and that was it. They didn't even know what it meant. But they used it pretty good. They still use it today. Because they misused that scriptural passage, judge not lest you be judged. What is he talking about? What was Jesus talking about there in the Sermon on the Mount? He was talking about the, 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 the cruel way that some people were judging others, even though they themselves had problems themselves. You know, here's a guy with a splinter, and you're judging him, but you have a telephone pole in your own eye. That was what that was about. But in the very same chapter of Matthew chapter 7, uh, where we find judge not lest you be judged, We also hear Jesus say this. If you go down to verse 15, notice what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. What is that? You judge them. You'll know them by their fruits. That's judging. Proper judging. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. What is that? Judging. Putting a judgment upon what is wrong. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. What's that? That's judging. God says you can judge this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. To know something is to judge it by what it is. So you see how that one little phrase, just not lest you, lest you be judges, is so misused. Because it's not applied in the proper way. And Jesus made it very clear, beware of false prophets. You need to know them, you need to judge them by their fruits. So in fact, under the leading of the Holy Spirit then, Paul does, does pronounce the judgment of God But it's the judgment of God, not the judgment of Paul. The judgment of God upon Elymas, for he was struck blind. And we can't help but think that when this happened, Paul remembered his own experience with God on the road to Damascus. 
You remember Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to gather them together and bring them to trial and possibly to execution. That was Paul's desire. That was his obsession. And along the way on that road to Damascus, Jesus meets him. And he sees Jesus, but in, in that the very meeting there was this bright light. It knocks Paul down to the ground. And when Paul is ready to get up, he can't see anything. As a matter of fact, in Acts 9 verse 8, it says, And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Interestingly enough, that when Paul arose, those that were with him, took him immediately and led him by the hand into Damascus. You see, there's a contrast here. When Elymas was struck, he was looking for somebody. He was looking. He was grasping. Paul didn't have to grasp. He had met Jesus. And Jesus prepared for him his helpers. Elymas looked around. It's the way the world is today. They go blind and they get blinder. And they go searching and looking for someone. But nobody's there. Those who are resistors of God are blind spiritually. And so God only gave Elymas a physical blindness to correspond with his spiritual blindness. But the sad thing is that we never hear of that sorcerer repenting as Paul did. Now, some have thought Paul to be too harsh here as well, but then again, remember that the eternal destiny of the proconsul was at stake. And really, the eternal destiny of both those men were at stake. But the results are clear. When you look at verse 12, it says, The proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is amazing, folks. Listen carefully. He believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching, the teaching of the Lord. What was it that the proconsul saw? Well, first of all, he saw the courage of Paul, a man of conviction and bold in his belief, one willing to take a stand for what he believed. Secondly, he saw the just and proper result of Elymas' sin. It makes me wonder what would happen if more people saw how much trouble sin gets them into so that they might run after the things of God a whole lot harder. It makes me wonder. See, people don't look at the things that they do today as sin, so they don't realize that there's consequences. The breaking of law, in fact, is sin. But people are breaking the law every day. Look at the newspapers. Look at the news. Eh, what's a couple of hours in the clink? Somebody will get me out. See, that's the attitude. A few years ago when... when, uh, there were this rash of, of carjackings in, in, in Miami, Florida. It was at a time when, when um, vehicles coming out of rent-a-car places you know, were very well marked, by, and so they would target them. And, 
And they were, these young people were killing people for the cars. When they'd arrest them, they'd take them in and, and, and you'd see them on the TV and they showed no remorse whatsoever. There was no moral compass. Either it had been lost or it had never been there to begin with. What's happened with our society? What would happen if more people saw how much trouble sin gets them into? And what the eternal consequences would be? But the proconsul Sergius Paulus saw what happened to Elymas. But most importantly, most importantly, Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. As amazing as the miracle of the sorcerer's blindness was, the good news that the proconsul heard was even more amazing. He was literally, literally shaken violently out of his complacency. What is complacency? I've often heard sermons, and I've even preached them myself, about getting out of that complacent situation in our lives and start serving the Lord as God has commanded us to. Complacency literally is is smugness, to be smug about things, to be self-satisfied and even self-confident and self-righteous at the same time. That's complacency. Sitting back without a care in the world, it's somebody else's problem, it's somebody else's world, it's somebody else's mission, it's somebody else's cause. That's complacency. But Sergius Paulus was shaken out of that by the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And God would not have us merely put our faith in miracles. He saw also what happened to Elymas. But God would not have us merely put our faith in miracles. It wasn't the sign, but it was the Scripture that struck the blow that opened his heart. Not the sign, but the Word of God. That's what opens our hearts. And if anything, the miracle was evidence to Sergius Paulus that Barnabas and Paul were servants of the true God and they preached the true message of salvation. You see, in the words of of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to what? To the things we have heard. I wanted to hear it. (laughs) The more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast... Excuse me, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. They were just the evidence. But it was the Word spoken, the Word that was heard. Romans 10 verse 17, we know this. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And what is the Gospel then? What is the Gospel? Go up a few verses earlier in Romans 10. Go up to verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Paul says when he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. From what? From what you've heard. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul makes it very clear to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He goes on to describe the number of people that were witnesses of these things, and witnesses of Christ risen from the dead. But the clear gospel is given to us that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That, was, that is what needs to be heard. That is what needs, to be, uh, what needs to be spoken. That is what needs to be received by the people that we know are in darkness, that we know are dead in their trespasses and sins. So you go back to the thought that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Why? Because you have heard the Gospel. And you respond to it. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. And it brings us to the very reason why. Verse 17 of Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It wasn't the miracles that would save anyone. It wasn't being a witness to miracles. People saw Jesus feed over 12,000 people with a little boy's lunch. But, people, uh, but Jesus said to them, but you know what? That's all you want. You just want that bread. He says, I am the bread of life. The miracle only brings you to want more of the miracle. I came to give you eternal life. And Sergius Paulus believed. And how did he believe? Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is a good time for us to examine our hearts as to what we've heard. Not just now, but what we have heard in the gospel. Has it truly converted us? Has it made that difference in our lives to the extent that we are no longer the people we were, but we are now new creatures in Christ? The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Is it any wonder that the apostles would encourage us to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith? Even as we are already called Christians or believers. Examine yourselves. This whole lesson here teaches us a number of things. Certainly it, it tells us that, that we who are believers need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to, to be able to counter that, that false, that sham, that non-genuine were that many people have today and recognize error for what it is. It's a lesson to us to be uncompromising with the Word of God. 
It's also a lesson for us to know that when we go out in the mission field that God has called us to, that He said, I'll be with you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. He wasn't talking about the end of a place. He says to the end of the age, speaking in time. He's going to be with us all the time. And it's a lesson for us to truly know the Lord that saved us. To truly know Him. A thought came to mind as I was preparing this message and all. We, we are looking at the, the very onset of Paul's ministry as a missionary. The very beginnings of his, of his uh, calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But it also brought to mind the end of Paul's ministry. And I thought greatly about his last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, 2 Timothy. And in chapter 4, I thought about the things that Paul was, was requesting as he was there in a dungeon, in a prison, awaiting his execution. From beginning to end, Paul was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the end, Paul would, would mention the, the few that would have, would have been with him for a time, but then left him, abandoned him, forsook him. He said, only Luke is with me, the writer of the book of Acts, by the way. Only Luke is with me. And he makes a request to Timothy to bring him his, his cloak, his, his parchments, his books, and for Timothy to come himself. And you would think he's lonely. He wants fellowship. Who doesn't want fellowship in times like that? But that's not what it was all about. Because you see, what stands out the most about Paul in his last days is that he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And he says, I'm being poured out. But I have finished the race well. He began well, as we saw in this passage. And he ends well. And I want that to be an encouragement to you as believers in Jesus Christ as we look to the day of Jesus approaching. Jesus is coming again. You know, we sang about that in that new song today, Jesus, come. It's the cry of every believer, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until He comes, will we finish well the race that is set before us? And even if we have opposition, will we stand true? Will we stand strong? Will we we be uncompromising? It's taught me some things. I have to take a stand about some things in my life. And with people in my life. 
Has it spoken to you the same way? God's word is true. Let's take heed. Let's finish well. Let's pray.